Hey, hey, water coolians. Welcome back. Another new episode as we come closer and closer to the end of the world. I mean, did I say world? I meant year. I meant year. We're currently almost into December here. But today we are joined by Dr. Nicole Cook, who spends her paid time as a professor at the University of South Carolina and is currently holding the Augusta Baker Endowed Chair at the university as well to discuss the age-old adage of knowledge is power. Those who control the information control the world. And to that aged old adage, oh my gosh, that is a mouthful. Our first story covers the development of book bans, but more specifically book bans in prisons, and why prisons might ban, say, a ramen recipe book that they say could incite violence and upheaval. I am not even joking, listeners. A ramen recipe book is one of the most banned books in U.S. prisons. Welcome to America, baby. Uh, But our conversation focuses on some of the reasons behind these bans and the influence of fear when controlling the flow of information and in turn how that's used to control people. Because, you know, if you treat another human like a human, you know, maybe not treat them like they're animals and can't handle seeing romance on the cover of a novel, when they are released from prison, they would have maybe an easier time reintegrating themselves into society, you know, less likely to reoffend. you know, prison populations would go down, and we could actually address the roots of crime instead of just punishing people for this crime. You know, maybe maybe dig a little deeper into what's happening here. Is, is, is that not the goal here? Uh, one second, listener, just uh, readjusting my word of the week. Oh, interesting. It is a sarcasm this week. The word of the week is sarcasm. And then we end our conversation discussing the exodus of teachers from foreign countries to countries like the U.S. and the U.K. and the brain drain they leave behind in their wake. Within that conversation, we talk about the impact of the current education system, specifically here in the U.S. where we record, and how a multitude of factors, including you know, not increasing teacher wages for over 30 years. That is a very, very, very true fact here in the U.S. And it also made me realize I'm almost 30, which is a bit concerning. But also how the current fire hose of information of our online world is causing some major issues within education and the understanding of what is being taught. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is episode 89 of Water Cooler Talk podcast titled Rabble Rousers with... Nicole Cook. Enjoy. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. You know, growing up, I was an avid fiction reader, particularly mystery thrillers, uh, that kind of thing. But when I went back to graduate school for, I think, the third time, uh, to get the PhD, I will say that that kind of burned out my kind of love for reading for fun, if you will. So I will say that there are many books, many authors that have influenced me. I think post PhD, I'm looking at Bell Hooks, mm-hmm. at Paolo Fiere. Um, I'm looking at Kimberly Crenshaw. I'm looking at uh, these folks that are really talking about the transformation of teaching, since you know that's really you know where I'm at now as a faculty member. So those are the three that come to mind, but there are many, many others uh, that, you know, really have significantly influenced how I think, how I teach, you know, and just really how I kind of move in the world. Yeah, Bell Hooks has been coming up a lot, you know, in a previous episode with Maya Ford, she mentioned Bell Hooks as well. You know, I got a few books of her that I've been looking or uh, reading through, but it is so interesting to see those influential figures, you know, come up again and again, and you realize, you know, 
they might not be huge on this world stage where everyone knows their name, but they're having this impact that is, you know, helping shape, you know, the systems that they were working towards. Yeah, absolutely. And I will, you know, even to that, and I will add Audre Lorde. Um, and just, you know, to your point, I think, you know, they had been doing such amazing work. And, you know, because academia is the way it is, it's not necessarily mainstream, but mm -hmm. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, James Baldwin, right? A little bit more popular in, in that respect, but really having laid the groundwork um, and I think rightfully getting their due now, uh, you know, as people discover them more and more. Yeah. I mean, even to one of my favorite books that I try to read, you know, at least once a year, A Lesson Before Dying by Ernest J. Gaines, you know, about the fictional retelling of, you know, Willie Francis, just having that for me, you know, I'm... I, the listeners should know by now, but I'm a white man and being able to have those different perspectives to open up my worldview, you know, that's something that I think books do a really good job in allowing that to happen within, you know, society here. And as we'll talk about in this first story coming up, you know, the the drawbacks of banning books and not allowing those worldviews to to prosper the way they should. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, in addition to the worldviews, uh, for others, which is just really so important, it's just really important to be able to see yourself in some of these books uh, with some of these experiences and the stories that are told. You know, sometimes, you know, when it's out of sight, it's out of mind. Uh, and we don't necessarily think people understand what we're going through because it's just our experience. But when you see it reflected in that way, it really opens up uh, your own worldview in addition to allowing others to appreciate those stories. Yeah. And I know you, you know, before we start recording, you talked about, you know, knocking down all those accomplishments. Now you're just, you know, resting, taking. Have you gotten back to the mystery thriller genre yet? Or are you still? I have. I have. I'm listening to uh, books on tape. Okay. Yeah. So this way I can, um, you know, I need to have my hands busy, right? <laughs> so I can at least do a little something. Then I can listen. Um, I can listen in the car. So and it's it's I'm really enjoying uh, the narrators uh, and their performance. So I never thought I would get to the point where I have like favorite narrators, <laughs> but I do. Um, and so if they're reading something, then I'll, I'll typically pick it up and listen to it. I know a good voice can really add to a story and really add context to something that, you know, sometimes the voice in our head maybe isn't the best narrator. So it's good to get somebody else to do it. Yes. Well, yes. All right, Nicole, are you ready to jump into our first story of the episode today? Yeah, let's do it. This is from UPI US News written by Doug Cunningham, October 25th, 2023. New report finds staggering number of books banned in US prisons. A report from PEN America, a nonprofit whose goal is to raise awareness for the protection of free expression in the U.S., released a report that found prisons censor a, quote, staggering number of books and other reading materials, not just for content, but for a multitude of capricious reasons. The report, titled Reading Between the Bars, an in-depth look at prison censorship, relied on freedom of information requests made to prison systems across all states and to the Federal Bureau of Prisons itself. Pen America said the report reveals extensive prison censorship of content, including medical and art books, dictionaries, and other reference materials. Moira Marquis, lead author of the report, stated, The extent of prison book banning is alarming and an attack on the written word itself. Censorship should not be a knee-jerk tactic by authorities to address other prison concerns. Yet, we are witnessing vast amounts of time, effort, and money expended in order to stop people from reading. This censorship must end. The most commonly cited reason for censoring was related to sexually explicit content. 
For other reasons, in example, in Kansas prisons, books such as James Baldwin's I Am Not Your Negro face bans for reasons related to racism and inciting. While materials acknowledging the realities of racial violence, including those discussing critical race theory, were disproportionately subjected to censorship. The report also highlighted a growing trend in prisons where, aside from outright bans on certain titles, there was an increasing restriction to only permit books from prison-approved vendors. They found that books were often banned by prison mailroom staff for inconsistent reasons, and those staff positions often required little to no specific knowledge of the literature being banned, and heavy on usually no specific knowledge. Prison Ramen, a cookbook featuring ramen recipes tailored to being cooked in a prison cell, stands out as one of the most commonly banned books in U.S. prisons. The book not only provides recipes, but shares personal stories from former inmates detailing the creation of a recipe or recounting a significant moment associated with the meal. Often, literature related to the prison experience and or system has been found to consistently be a targeted category for censorship. Robert Greene, the best-selling author of books such as The 48 Laws of Power, has seen his catalog of work banned in prison systems across 19 states. He stated, It's a form of control. It's the ultimate form of power of manipulation. The hypocrisy of saying, This is a book that's dangerous for you, whereas they're the ones that are completely controlling the dynamic and giving access to only certain amounts of information is very frightening. That's how totalitarian systems operate. So, Nicole, this theme of control, which we have discussed in you know previous episodes with Hajar and Maya, seemed to be creeping more and more into our modern day. You know, when you look at the prison system, control is uh, essential to the day-to-day life that they experience there. You know, this idea of I tell you what to do, what to eat, when to sleep, when to shower, you know, seems quote unquote normal, you know, when looked at through the lens of the prison system. But that's what we're also seeing when it comes to censorship in a way, you know, same ideas, kind of different lens. And you have this really good quote, uh, librarians and the future librarians we teach have always loved books and reading. While our work has changed in this era of increasing censorship, in one sense, it has not. We are still devoted to the idea that we serve our communities by providing them with books that open the world to them and give them the opportunity to learn about themselves and others. And so to that, how does banning or limiting access to books impact a community, even in, you know, kind of the smaller aspect of a prison system? Yeah. And, you know, I was really struck by this article uh, for a couple of reasons. One, because, you know, as you mentioned, we're seeing this this uptick uh, in book challenges and banning. And it's not new, right? We've been doing this for, you know, hundreds of years, as long as there's been material Someone has wanted to censor it for one reason or another. I was just seeing the, uh, I was just watching a video on burning um, records that, you know, promoted potentially the devil. <laughs> yes, exactly. And there was, um, I don't remember which state it was, um, a political candidate, as it seemed to me to be a stunt, but, you know, who knows? Um, they had a flamethrower uh, and, you know, we're going to bring back book burning in 2023. You know, and it's just mind boggling. This publicity stunt was done by a long shot candidate for Missouri governor, Republican Bill Eigel, in late September, who currently does, however, sit on the state Senate for Missouri. But yeah, we're seeing so much more of this now. Um, And I think the quote that was referenced in the article by Green is really just perfect. It's just um, about control and manipulation. Um, And really what it comes down to is for me, and I think a lot of uh, folks in libraries, you know, knowledge is power. And I know that that can sound uh, cliche, but it really is. So if you have folks 
uh, in the prison industrial complex who are becoming uh, not only more literate, but more informed about their own situations, who knows? They may start to question, you know, the folks that are in charge. And that's what they don't want. They don't want people asking questions. They certainly don't want people pushing back and challenging and saying, you know, you may be violating my rights. You know, even even in the confines of a prison, they still have basic human rights. And the more they know, the more they're going to question and the more they're going to say, you know, this doesn't really make sense. Um, and this is what, you know, that they don't want. So similarly, when we're talking about libraries and classrooms, right, isn't that the purpose of education, you know, to have people ask questions? But, you know, it, it seems not. Um, and that's really what we're battling. And in addition to not being able to see themselves and others, they're just, it's, it's really undemocratic. People are not able to express their thoughts and, and their opinions in a way that, you know, others are, right? And, and it's, it really is a way to suppress and just keep people down and keep people compliant, right? And, and I think for this particular story, that's really the crux of it is keeping people compliant. Well, even to the fact like that, you know, prison ramen recipe book, the fact that they don't want, you know, <laughs> them having that book because it talks about the experiences of other prisoners. And I think you said it beautifully, you know, when you start seeing how other people are living and you start questioning like, well, we're in like a pretty similar situation, but why is my situation worse? I think that's so important. And I, I don't agree with that. I want to be 100% clear. I don't agree with it, but I understand why prison systems are like, well, we don't want other prisoners to see how other prison systems can operate and operate correctly because, you know, I'm somebody who I currently, the prison system in the U.S., you know, I'm not 100% um, supportive. I think it should be a place for rehabilitation, not punishment. And there are prison systems that are doing a good job at doing that. And if those stories come out, you know, other prison systems and prisoners are going to be like, well, shoot, <laughs> what's going on here? You know, I think a, a good book in kind of going to your flamethrower uh, example, you know, Fahrenheit 451 was a perfect book that said, if we can control information, if we can take away knowledge, if we can take away the information that's available, we get to set the perspective on what people believe and what people need to read and what people should know. And, you know, you look at that book by Bradbury and you say, well, that could never happen. But we're starting to see it happen. Absolutely. We are absolutely seeing it. And, you know, the the power is is just so key. Right. And I think part of why it's key is because it, it roots back to money. If we can keep people compliant and we can keep people unknowledgeable, and to your point, if we can keep people from not being rehabilitated, when they get out, there's a really good chance they're going to come right back in because they don't have the knowledge and the skills to function in the outside world, right? And particularly if you're talking about folks who have been incarcerated, you know, for 10 plus years, right? They don't, I, I remember seeing, um, you know, news clips of, folks getting out after, you know, 20, 30 years, they don't know what the internet is. They don't know how to use a cell phone. Um, and then, you know, when they don't have the skills, it's hard to get employment. We won't even get into the part about them not being able to vote and participate in the democratic society. And they go back in, um, the recidiv recidivism rate is super high. And that just contributes to the bottom line for this prison industrial complex. I don't know that anybody would admit it, you know, on, on the, the prison end, the system. Um, but it's a business, right? And <laughs> yeah. their, business, their business is incarceration. So it doesn't behoove them to have a, a, 
a really literate population that, to your point, is going to say, hey, we know that other places don't do it this way. And why aren't we doing it this way? Yeah, I I 100 percent agree. It's, you know, a lot of these prison systems are businesses that can use labor that, you know, obviously they are paying them. But if you're only making a quarter or 50 cents an hour, I was close. The actual average wage for non-industry jobs in the U.S. prison system is 86 cents an hour, you know, for work that, you know, you should be paying a livable wage for. It seems like, you know, there's there's there might be something wrong there. (laughs) But, you know, a good example I always, you know, heard around, you know, obviously the prison system and the control of the prison system is a similar example to say like divorce rates. Right. You know, they say this example, like half of marriages end in divorce, but they don't take into account that if you're going to be divorced, you're more likely to be divorced again and again and again and again. And so kind of to what you were saying, as far as, you know, people who come out of prison are more likely to reoffend because if you're not learning the proper things to how to be re- rehabilitated, how to have a successful marriage, you're going to keep doing those things over and over again. And we're seeing that. And we're seeing a situation where if we don't allow those in the prison system to improve themselves and to be able to allow for free expression and to allow to read from different instances of authors talking about things that impact their life, especially around, you know, racial violence and racial issues and the impact that those things are having on their community. When they get out, you know, how are they going to truly understand how society works? Absolutely. And and not only how will they know how things work, you know, the this idea that certain things are being restricted because it could incite violence or, you know, it might let them know how things work, uh, quote unquote, on the inside. They already know. Mm -hmm. I mean, even if they didn't want to read about it, they still know because this is the environment that they experience. uh, And perhaps, you know, depending on where they're coming from, this is what they experienced on the outside. So this idea that reading about their own experiences is going to make them more violent (laughs) It seems, you know, really backwards to me. But, uh, you know, again, whatever their rationale is, but just, you know, being able to function. I think the key word, again, that you mentioned is rehabilitation. We talk a lot about um, how to work with the formerly incarcerated uh, in libraries, you know, how to help them apply for a job, right? How to help them use uh, the computer and get set up and just, you know, basic life skills, basic adulting. Now, to be fair, we do these programs with everyone, right? So what benefits one benefits all, you know, but just to have folks have a place to come, um, something where it's free, that, that's a big thing. Um, and just also be able to go someplace where they're part of a community. Mm-hmm. Our largest membership organization, which is the American Library Association, They just redid the standards for uh, services to the incarcerated. So these are guidelines that uh, librarians and information professionals can rely on to have ideas about how to work with this population because we consider them an underserved and an underrepresented population. And they hadn't been revised in over 30 years, which is a problem in and of itself, but um, it has been revised. Um, And, you know, and I think really bringing more light that this is a valuable population. This is a valuable community that deserves humanity and deserves services, right? And so I wish that there were, you know, similar guidelines inside, you know, um, we have a a real lack of prison librarians. Frankly, you know, it can be a a dangerous job. 
But also, you know, when we're talking about the censorship in prisons and in jails, what library professional or information professional wants to go in there, you know, and then have books ripped apart, you know, things censored and really not be able to do the core aspect of their job, which is to provide information, right? I remember hearing um, about some books that were uh, censored in a particular prison and they were ripping the covers off. Like, so for example, if you had a romance novel, they would rip the cover off because that was going to incite them to uh, not only violence, but sexual violence. And I remember thinking, you know, how little they must think of the folks that are incarcerated, right? Because you're assuming that they have such base, uncontrollable instincts that simply seeing a picture is going to make them uncontrollable. Mm -hmm. There is a a real lack of humanity tied to the censorship, I think, on top of, you know, the control and the manipulation and and the suppression aspect of it. Yeah. And it's, you know, if you treat people like they're not humans, they'll react like they're not humans in response to say, all right, this is what you want me to be. You know, this is what I'm going to be to show you. And I think that's something that we see a lot in these prison systems that a lot of these administrations that run these prisons and, you know, a lot of these wardens don't necessarily see these humans as humans. And that's a large concern when it comes to, you know, seeing prisons as places to punish people instead of rehabilitate people, seeing prisons as a workforce. You know, we see this a lot, obviously, in China with the Uyghurs. But this is a situation where it, it becomes a sense of losing humanity. You know, nobody wants to be in prison. Like, I think that's something that has to be very clear. You know, no one wants to go to prison. But a lot of times, you know, your situations in life just re- lead you down, you know, bad paths. You know, even like that book I mentioned, A Lesson Before Dying, that teen just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and got punished for that. And I think we see a lot of that within, you know, trying to control what books, what information is in these prisons, because, well, really, we're just kind of caging these humans that we don't actually see as humans. And so they don't need to read books. They don't need to feel emotions. They don't need to feel love. They don't need to feel romance. They don't need to feel, you know, mystery. They don't need to be thrilled by those type of books. You know, it just perpetuates as those people are released from prison they have that mindset of like, well, I'm not a human, so I'm not a part of society. I don't need to really fit in, and I'm going to fit in in my own way. And sometimes that's not as beneficial to society as it should be. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a beautiful description. Um, and when you were saying it, I'm thinking also that really what it's saying to these folks is that they don't deserve pleasure. Yes. They don't deserve fun. They don't deserve lightheartedness right? We all have difficulties. We all have anger. We all have all of these things and they do too. Why shouldn't they have a light moment? To your point, once they're released, there's so much good, right? And and they won't know how to enjoy it. They will think it's not for them, right? And it's a further way- Like they don't belong. That they don't belong. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, even, I kind of want to get to the flip of this because I thought this would be kind of an interesting question. In certain cases, do you think it might be beneficial to ban books? You know, Maybe to be more clear on that question, like how do we determine what is and isn't acceptable or to like this Pan America organization? Is that the point of freedom of expression? You know, truly allowing any and all ideas to flow free. Like what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, this gets it gets really sticky, um, you know, particularly with free speech and, and things of that nature. And so when we're talking about information 
Um, and, and part of my work is also about misinformation and disinformation and uh, malinformation, which is information that can actually harm people uh, physically, mentally, et cetera, is that, you know, things that are just blatantly untrue. That's different, for, in my opinion, um, in terms of what should and shouldn't be in a collection and what should and should not be available. Um, you know, we've got a lot of folks that believe in conspiracy theories. You know, on one hand, that can be very, very dangerous. But think about at least when I grew up with supermarket tabloids, that was all misinformation and disinformation. I just didn't know it. But I looked at it as it was just fun yep. gossip. I remember the Inquirer. And the Inquirer, absolutely. That was that was <laughs> that was prime time reading right there. But yeah, we've got things that are so much uh, more harmful and and sometimes deadly. You know, you're thinking about COVID and and these false uh, cures that were actually killing people, right? And that obviously should not be permitted, right? So if we're talking about banning and challenging, um, I think we could rethink the idea of challenging, right? So not challenging, so I'm taking it from you, right? Because if I don't want you to take something from me, then I don't have the right to take anything from you. But I can challenge you and say, you know, that's not true. You know that uh, injecting bleach is not going to cure COVID, mm-hmm. you know, but it does get into that that dance, particularly with folks who believe whatever conspiracy theory or this misinformation that you then have to verify it and you have to fact check and, and all of that good stuff. And that's fine. But, you know, when we're talking about the banning and the challenging in libraries and in classrooms, if we're talking about factual information, right? So let's let's draw that line between not factual uh, kind of propaganda, kind of uh, conspiracy theory, things that are just not true. And then we're talking about things that are factual, even though I know that there is a lot of debate about what's factual and what's not. But if we're talking about what's factual, you know, for me, it really just is as simple as if you don't want to read it, don't read it. <laughs> I just, I don't. it should be that simple, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, to me, I mean, there was lots of stuff that my mother wouldn't allow me to read. But it was still available. It's still available in the public library. You know, there's there's a you know one of the uh, library adages is is that there is a book for every person. You know, what if you reading one book that is horribly offensive to me, but maybe there's an experience or something that you need to learn about? Why why would I deprive you of that? Right? Because I wouldn't want you to then come and take something that you know is valuable to me. Some of it is self-centeredness. I think some of it is just plain ignorance. And I don't always mean that in a pejorative way, ignorance. I mean, in terms of people just don't know mm-hmm. and people just get really caught up in these, these boogeyman, um, you know, CRT and, you know, all of these things. And they, and, you know, if you ask them, they can't define it. If you ask them, you know, what intersectionality is, they can't define that, but we can't be literature about it. Why? Right. So, I mean, there are other, there are lots of other, um, mental processes and beliefs and I think a lot of religious dimensions in terms of what people think is acceptable and what people think is normal. What I personally can't wrap my head around is what you do in your house is what you do in your house. It's beyond me why people think that because they don't want to do A, B, and C, it means the entire world or the entire community can't do or read A, B, or C. I think it comes down to fear. And even fear, you know, leads into control. You know, the more you can control, the less you're afraid of. Yes. I I understand 
the world. And if I get challenged on that, that's scary. That's very fearful. You know, it's not, I'm trying to say you're wrong, I'm right. You know, I thought you said it in a very respectful way. I have information that I believe to be true. And when I get challenged on that, it completely shatters my whole worldview. You know, I think what books do really well and what you spoke to, you know, there's a book for everyone. Books really express the complexities of life. You know, not everyone has the same experience. You know, we might have a lot of similarities, but at the end of the day, you know, having the ability to have a book, say, in a library where the character has, you know, two dads or two moms is so important. You know, even though that's not my experience or that might not be your experience, somebody out there has that experience is trying to understand how to go through society because, you know, when you look at everything that's showing, it's to be like, all right, it should be this way but my life's not that way. So how do I come to understand how I should be a part? And obviously going back to the prison systems, you know, how do I feel like I can belong in the society and having the options to have those books that tell those stories, you know, from other people telling their stories of being in that realm is so important. And I thought you said it beautifully, you know, if it's a book you don't like, you don't have to read it, you know? Why are you taking away the ability for somebody to feel like they belong in the world? You know, obviously, I think, once again, it goes back to that fear and control. But at the same time, just don't read it. Just move past it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, nothing's going to happen if you don't read it. <laughs> you know, as you were speaking, it reminded me. So I teach uh, graduate students for the most part. I've been teaching for about 12 years. Um, I was a librarian before that. And I've had graduate students in the last 10 years tell me I've never had a teacher of color. Mm. I've never had one in the front of the classroom that didn't look like me. Interesting. Yeah. And I, you know, uh, but then I had to think about, I didn't have a teacher of color till I was in college too. So, Mm -hmm. and I, you know, came from a very diverse community and uh, et cetera, but, you know, higher, it's a very uh, different thing. But to say, you know, to your point about being able to learn about other people and other experiences, you know, that's the opportunity for them to uh, read narratives from students of color or teachers of color. Um, you know, we're ta- I'm training future librarians, read about librarians of color and see what experiences they have and not only be able to learn, but also to incorporate, right? So if they are seeing that this amazing librarian did this fabulous thing in this community, it's a community that perhaps they never even considered. Mm. It's a community that they never thought that they might serve in their practice. And not only are they discovering new communities, they're discovering new ways to do their job better as a whole. So when we're learning about other people, what is it about other cultures and other experiences that we can prioritize to make ourselves better, right? So this mm-hmm. is it's all about growth and you know just bringing all of the different uh, experiences to the table. And and to that point, you know, what role do you see libraries having in doing that, you know, in uh, uh, helping their communities find, you know, proper literature to expand their ver- worldviews and critical thinking? You know, even in this article, which I thought was absolutely crazy, mentions that Florida's prison system led the way in book bans, a staggering 22,825 prohibited titles. Texas was in not even a close second at 10,265 titles. And even beyond the prison system, about 40% of national book bans cases have originated in Florida as we're, you know, about a year out from, you know, our next general election. 
to that question, what roles do libraries and to your work in misinformation have in dispelling misinformation? And as I previously said, you know, helping their communities find that proper literature to expand the worldview and their critical thinking and critical education skills. Yeah, for sure. Personally, and you know, I'm biased when I say it, I think libraries can change the world. I just don't know that the public always knows that <laughs> or that the public believes that. You know, libraries are often, you know, kind of stereotyped, oh, well, they just check out books and I'm going to go for story time. Um, but they don't realize the extent of what we do every day. And, you know, another dimension to information that I, you know, think is really relevant to uh, the prison story that we started with is that a lot of information is behind a paywall. And so many people don't have access to perhaps more than Google or more than your, your search engines or, you know, what they happen to see out and about, right? We, we're in an age where newspapers have decreased. Uh, lots of people live in news deserts where there is no local media or local paper where they can, you know, have some trust in the information that they're receiving. Uh, and I think that's where libraries really fill that gap. And so we have databases, we have subscriptions to hundreds and hundreds of things in addition to, you know, the books that they check out. Um, they can access the information in the library, they can access it from home. And so when you hear something crazy, you know, maybe, you know, again, our favorite uh, National Enquirer, maybe you see that that headline in the supermarket, you can go home and verify that, right? Because the library can give you access to the information that can help you verify it. Um, and we can teach you how to verify it. And we have classes and we have handouts. We have all sorts of things. And I know sometimes folks may feel like it's a little didactic. You know, I'm not going to the library to teach a class or to take a class, I should say. But it's there. And we have lots of ways to help people do that. So, you know, to your point about the election, and this is where, you know, we, we even have some internal fights in librarianship. A lot of people say libraries are neutral and libraries are not neutral. We can be nonpartisan. We are not neutral. Every decision we make has a rationale, even if it's internal, and it could have a repercussion. Um, it could fall on one side or another. So while we can't obviously tell you, oh, you shouldn't vote for this person or you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't do that. What our job is and what we are good at is saying, here's the issue and here is all of the information that you have disposal to or I should say you have at your disposal to make an informed decision, right? So we pride ourselves on this idea of being democratic centers, and we want you to have all of the information that you need or want in order to make an informed decision so you can participate. So it's ultimately up to you what you do with the information. We just want to make sure that folks have access to that information, and then they can take it from there. I think you beautifully said it. Libraries are these opportunities where free information is readily available. And I, I, I do think one of the things that I don't know if movies, TV shows, whatever it may need to be get better at is librarians aren't just people that like books. Yeah, they like books, but they're people that have spent a lot of time in school. You know, I think you really have to get like a master's degree to be a librarian and, you know, be in that field. So these are people that are more than just people that like books and just have a free, you know, time to stick around the library. These people are these are individuals that understand the importance of information. And as you were saying, the importance of 
hey, you have an issue. Here is the available information that you have at your disposal to come to a conclusion on your own merits. We have the information. We're not going to tell you what information you need to read. You know, we're not going to force you to read something. But librarians understand the importance of information and critical thinking and why it is important to have readily available free uh, information. Because, yeah, I think you're totally right there as far as you know, when we get on the internet, not everyone has access to the internet. Not everyone has a computer. You know, not everyone has the ability to get a newspaper. You know, not everyone has the ability to, you know, have informed individuals that speak to the causes that they're talking about. And a library is something that is community driven and allows that ability to say, here, here's what you might need. And it's all free. Absolutely. And, you know, to the point, uh, librarians do get a master's degree. Um, and I know that, you know, there's a lot of discussion sometimes about, well, why do you really need a master's degree to check out books, right? So again, the misconception about, you know, what we really do. And even when folks want to come into our programs, inevitably they'll say, I love to read. And we'll say, that's great, but you're not going to have time to read, right? There's so many other things that we're doing. And I think important to this conversation is um, every library is going to have a collection development policy. Right. And this is how we curate collections and how we vet information. So when we're giving the information to you, it's already vetted. Like if I'm doing a Google search for you, that's different. But if I'm handing you something out of the collection, whether it's print or audio or something, this has already been vetted. This has already uh, been established that this fits our scope and our collection and our mission as to what kind of information uh, we want to have for our communities. And so I think that that adds a level of trust, hopefully, you know, for folks when they're coming in and they say, we know we can get uh, good information here, you know, and back to even the book challenges in the bands, libraries are going going to have what we call reconsideration policies or documents. And so there are processes for everything. So when someone comes in, they say, I don't like this book. That's good. That's nice. Here, fill out this form. It still has to process. Right. So, you know, different places uh, act in different ways and they, you know, make decisions in different ways. But to say that, you know, the folks that you're encountering, they're professionals. Um, They have a a huge foundation in information in how to um, curate and also disseminate and teach those critical thinking skills, like you mentioned. Um, So I hope that people will increase their trust because I think a lot of people trust libraries, which is which is great. Um, But when we're talking about COVID or we're talking about the upcoming election or we're talking about these really controversial issues, um, we should be one of the first stops so folks can get the information they need to be informed. Well, I'd like to welcome to the show Dr. Nicole Cook, currently holding the Augusta Baker Endowed Chair at the University of South Carolina. Dr. Cook carries on the legacy of Augusta Braxton Baker, a legendary and beloved trailblazer for Black librarianship. In addition to her role as chairholder, Dr. Cook's work as a professor at South Carolina finds her focusing on human information behavior, critical cultural information literacy, and equity and social justice in librarianship. And I know, listeners, you've been more than enjoying the longer episodes, but if we if we were to dive into uh, your extensive list of accomplishments and accolades, we may need a day or two, or maybe even three, to cover it all. <laughs> Nicole, welcome to Water Cooler Talk. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Uh, so, when coming into your role as chairholder, you mentioned in a previous conversation that it was a quote dream job you never knew you wanted. 
How did someone like Augusta Baker, whose impactful contributions gave children the chance to read stories beyond their race, especially narratives around Black Americans and literature, influence your work to make libraries more reflective of their communities? You know, and it's it's interesting. Um, librarianship has a very long history. It also has um, some examples of perhaps being on the wrong side of history. For example, librarianship has a very significant history of segregation, not only with segregated communities and segregated libraries where, you know, you had the colored library or you had the white library, similar, you know, to the water fountains and, and things of that nature. But there was also segregation in how librarians were educated. So librarians could only be trained in the South, Black librarians, that is. So when you have someone like Augusta Baker and she actually received her degree in Albany. And the lore is that Eleanor Roosevelt played a part in having her be accepted to this white program. And then having her break all of the barriers that she did at the New York Public Library. It's amazing to think of what she did in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, not that her entire career wasn't fabulous. It was. Um, but just, you know, at that particular time, And, you know, we talk a lot about representation matters, you know, whether it's in books or in other things. And to have her and others and be able to see myself as a Black woman in this profession and see it represented so well and see all of the things that she was able to do. She she was a master storyteller. Uh, She had influence on the origins of Sesame Street and, and things of that nature. It's just um, a wonderful thing to see. It's a wonderful example of librarianship, I think, for everyone, um, not the least of which would be uh, Black librarians. Yeah, even, you know, doing, obviously, research on your life and your work and, you know, obviously going into the research on her life and her work, it was so impactful to see the well impact that she was able to have through her work. And what you said was beautiful. Representation does matter. You know, we talked about that in our episode with Maya Ford, where we talked about, you know, if someone else has done it, so can I. Yes. If they did it, so can I. I always say that uh, I stand on her shoulders. And my job as the endowed chair name for her is to continue her work, extend her work and highlight her work. And so, you know, hers, I think, is one of many examples where we don't always know our history. So I didn't actually learn about Mrs. Baker when I was in library school. Um, I learned about her once I was out in the profession. One of the things that's really important to me is to make sure that students know about not only her, but her contemporaries. There are so many stories about these amazing librarians all over the country, all over the world that did phenomenal things that on paper, they should not have been able to do at the time at which they were doing it, right? So I think we need to um, be doing a better job with our history and, and keep building. You know, there are very little thing, very few things that we are actually discovering outright anymore. It's just a matter of, you know, highlighting what's already been done and, you know, extending those legacies. What do you believe makes a good librarian when you're looking at, you know, past librarians and the success they have in certain fields and what they pass on, the legacies, you know, as your becoming somebody who people look up to and they want to continue your legacy, what are you hoping that these librarians have? You know, what makes them be a good librarian? (laughs) Maybe not the best sentence structure there, but. (laughs) Yeah, you know, and I think a lot of it is about who we are as people, 
right? We can teach skills, right? That's, that's what I do every day. We teach foundations, we teach skills. For an exceptional librarian, for an exceptional information professional, I want to see them have empathy. I want to see them have cultural humility. And by that, I mean, so for example, I mentioned uh, in another conversation, you know, where students are saying they've never had a, a Black teacher, right? Maybe they've never seen a Black librarian or they've never worked in a particular community. They're unfamiliar with this population. Cultural humility is telling them there is so much to learn about this community, mm-hmm. right? And I shouldn't be afraid of it. I shouldn't say it's not worthy, but I should be incorporating what they do into what I do. So cultural humility, cultural competence, really understanding, you know, other cultures, right? And, and highlighting and prioritizing, you know, those stories. On the flip side of that, I want to see some rabble rousers. Um, I want to see some activists. I want to see people who are willing to speak up and willing to be advocates and accomplices for these communities. Um, I always say to my students, you know, there's a popular way of, you know, kind of phrasing where someone will say, oh, well, this person gave community a voice. Like you didn't give them anything. They always had a voice. It's just been oppressed or dismissed or erased. You are amplifying their voice. And so I want librarians and folks to be advocates. And, you know, as the great John Lewis said, you're going to have to start some good trouble. And you're going to have to speak up and you're going to have to say, no, that's not right. The the stereotypes of librarians, you know, very mousy, very soft spoken and, you know, their nose in a book and they don't leave the building and all of those things. We have to continue to shatter those stereotypes and be part of the communities we serve and be advocates for those communities. So I think critically self-reflective about who you are and wanting to know better and do better. Uh, as it pertains to diverse communities, communities that are not the same as yours, and then being able to advocate really for everyone. I like that. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where I think empathy is such an important role in every position across every industry, because when we get to the point where, you know, say we talk about CEOs and, you know, the greed of the corporate structure and taking more and more money and the impact that has on other communities, if you don't have the empathy to realize oh, by standing on the backs of these communities, I'm making their lives much, much harder. That's an issue. And so I, I think you beautifully spoke to that. And I like that, you know, I like, you know, just good, just good rabble rousing, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I think there is importance of challenging the structures and realizing until everyone's equal, nobody's equal. You know, we have these systems in place that hurt other people. And why? We more than have enough resources, especially here in the U.S., where everyone can feel like they're in a place where their lives matter and where they can feel that they are a part of society, contribute to something bigger, the the quote unquote American dream that has, you know, fluctuated throughout, you know, time. But it is so important that you have that initial empathy to say, there's other people in the world and I'm not just the, you know, the main character. Other people have these very, very complex lives. And if I'm not considerate of those, we're never going to get to a place where everyone feels like they belong. That's exactly right. Absolutely. Well, before we move on, myself and Water Cooler Talk have embarked upon a mission to give back to various parts of the community and those who helped build our show to where it stands today. For each new episode of the podcast, the guests will bring with them a charity of their choice to represent. On the day of their episode going live, Water Cooler Talk will give a donation to that charity in honor of the guest, as well as a global platform to spread a message of love, hope, and togetherness. 
And we invite you listening to this episode to join in to help spread that message to your own personal audience. Nicole, your charity of choice for today's episode is the African American Policy Forum. Could you share with us the importance of their work and kind of continuing on what we were just talking about, the importance of challenging our current structures? Yeah, thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, the African American Policy Forum was founded and is run by Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, who is uh, best known for her work with intersectionality and also critical race theory. But what Dr. Crenshaw is doing at the Policy Forum is really amplifying voices. They have an amazing campaign called Say Her Name, and she's highlighting Black women, women of color who have been killed by police violence uh, and, and really just giving them humanity and remembering their stories, remembering their lives, and bringing awareness uh, to this idea that police violence affects everyone, not just men, not just black men, not just black women, but to everyone. Uh, and really, you know, Dr. Crenshaw has done an amazing job in giving us a language about how we define oppression or how we define systemic racism. And with that language, we can better work against it, right? We can't fix what we don't name. Uh, and so I think that her group and her um, organization really does a great job of raising awareness and giving people language and tools to fight back against systemic oppression. Yeah, I very much appreciate being able to share them on the show. And I think just throughout this podcast and its entire run, you know, finding out the importance of language and having correct language and language that is connecting to different communities because not all language connects to certain communities. And so I very much appreciate being able to bring this organization on the show today. Yeah, I'm happy to highlight them. They've, they've meant a lot to uh, my study and my research and, and how I'm able to teach about these issues in the classroom. Well, all right, Nicole, are you ready to jump into our final news story of the episode here? Absolutely, I'm ready. This final news story finds its way from the New York Times, written by Simone Romero, October 24th, 2023. Jamaica fears brain drain as teachers leave for U.S. schools. O'Keefe Saunders loves his job teaching history to high school students in Kingston, Jamaica, but despite teaching in Jamaica for the last 28 years, Mr. Saunders has been getting ready to leave for the U.S., where a teaching job with a much bigger paycheck awaits him in North Carolina. When an opportunity like this comes up, you go for it, he said. Mr. Saunders is not alone, though, in his decision to leave. In the past two years, approximately 10% of his fellow teachers have departed for teaching positions beyond Jamaica often leaving for better opportunities in the U.S., Canada, and the U.K., countries where recruitment efforts to address severe staff shortages have started to intensify. Uh, this is quite the fact. According to the U.S. Department of Education, in the U.S. alone, nearly half of all public schools have been operating without a full teaching staff. But the race to fill vacant teaching positions is creating havoc in the education system of Jamaica, the largest English-speaking country in the Caribbean, reflecting how school staffing challenges in rich nations are spawning a brain drain in parts of the developing world. Grace Bastone, principal of Campion College, one of Jamaica's top public high schools, said her school lost 16 of its 85 teachers in the last two years. Most went to the U.S., but others went to Canada or other countries in the Caribbean, such as Turks and Caicos and the Cayman Islands. Ms. Bastone stated, they're going wherever the U.S. dollar is being paid. It's not like, I got my papers. Yeah, I'm off to North Carolina. I'm off to North Carolina. Very often, the teacher's weeping when they are migrating. 
In 2023, the number of open teaching positions in the U.S. surged to around 55,000, marking a significant rise from the approximate 36,000 vacancies reported in 2022. Ton D. Nguyen, an associate professor at Kansas State and an expert on educator shortages, said the influx of teachers from abroad is key to address the mounting issues that have continued to persist. As more teachers in the U.S. continue to leave the profession, those who leave cite stagnating or declining salaries. And this is one of the craziest stats I've ever read on the show. The U.S. has seen a 0.2% increase. That's right, 0.2% increase in teacher wages since 1990. That is 33 years for a 0.2% increase in wages. Those leaving the profession also include a notable rise in job-related stress post-pandemic and ambiguous state laws that make teachers unsure of what can and cannot be said in classrooms. Wynn said the rush to hire foreign teachers can be advantageous for the U.S., but it's contributing to brain drain in those teachers' home countries. Wynn stated, There's the moral and ethical issue of what this means. If we're taking teachers from these countries, what happens to students in those countries? They also need teachers. We need to consider the net effect. Meanwhile, some of the Jamaican teachers who have migrated say the exodus laid bare problems in the education systems, both at home and abroad. Devin Thompson, a Spanish teacher who recently moved to the U.S. state of Georgia for a teaching position, said he was motivated not only by the low pay he was receiving, but by the dysfunction he saw around him in Jamaica. He said, The level of disgust that we have in how education is created in our country, it's the same way American teachers feel about their own system. But still, Thompson said he felt Jamaica could do more to retain teachers, starting with the very obvious boosting pay, an issue that the main teachers' union has consistently been agitating for. Others disagree, however, noting that Jamaica already spends more than 5% of its gross domestic product on public education, which, according to the World Bank, is relatively high compared to regional peers. Uh, for comparison, the U.S. spends 6% of its GDP on education. But for Jamaica's teachers who are on the fence about leaving their home country for work, the issue often does boil down to money. Donovan Edwards, who has uh, been a high school science teacher for over 22 years and still earns less than 24000 a year, said he is planning to move to the UK as he needs to make improvements to his house and pay for his daughter's studies. Just in comparison, the average salary for teachers in the US is 63000 so obviously a big difference in pay there. Edwards stated, I've seen teachers who are retired in poverty. I reached my breaking point. As the debate over teacher retention continues, the exodus of Jamaican teachers to richer nations highlights the complex challenges within education systems, both at home and abroad. So, Nicole, building on that, uh, as we're seeing an increasing number of foreign teachers seeking better opportunities, you know, outside their home countries, you know, improved quality of life. I think many of us would do the same if the opportunity was available. It seems like it does create this cyclical pattern where we are not actually addressing you know, the root issues prevalent in education, you know, the boat's going down slowly, you know, because we're plugging holes with our fingers, but eventually we're going to run out of fingers. You know, while there are a lot of, you know, while there are a lot of positives in providing opportunity and helping expand the worldview of students, at the same time, it is pushing teachers away and school boards being able to, you know, exploit the situation by opting for lower pay and, you know, having very dismissive attitudes, you know, we can pay this person slightly less, so F off. Mm -hmm. Is there a, a way to balance the ability to foster, you know, these innovative and welcoming voices in education from other countries? Um, you know, obviously, as a country, we want to strive for the best possible education, whether uh, if we truly put that into action or not. But how do we do so without compromising current teachers or 
you know, brain draining a, a developing country. And I guess I, I know that's very complex. So maybe, you know, a good place to start and build from is like, what are the issues you are seeing in the education system? Yeah, yeah. It's it's such a complex question and issue, right? Um, and I think, you know, the short answer is that there are lots of ways that we can improve these systems and make education better. I think the longer answer is that those solutions are expensive mm-hmm. and the solutions are things that people don't want to invest in. And so then that becomes, you know, kind of this double-edged sword about, you know, we have to keep things running and we don't have enough funding and we don't have enough budget. But on the other hand, education, as the article is pointing out, is hemorrhaging all over the world and, you know, it's not being replenished, right? So there are some just amazing teachers out there and they're leaving the jobs that they love because they're not getting adequate pay. They're not getting adequate support. Um, they're teaching to the test, mm-hmm. right? They're, they don't have the activity to, um, or the latitude to be able to teach in the ways that they want. Again, letting the teachers do what they came to do is, is but one way to um, counteract this situation because, you know, we talk about quality of life. The teachers want quality of life, not only inside the schools, but obviously outside of the schools. And all of these parameters to maintain funding or to appease politics or any of these things, the constraints are just becoming too much. Again, there's there's easy ways to fix that, but they're not profitable. Um, and it's not going to, you know, get the school systems where they want to be in the rankings or in, you know, in this position or having this type of leverage. So um, they are absolutely between a rock and a hard place. So I don't know, you know, whether the whole thing has to be burned down and we start again. Um, I'm not really sure, you know, what what that practical solution really looks like. Um, it's certainly not draining the forces of other countries and, and other populations. Yeah, I think that teacher Devin Thompson said it perfectly. Like, yeah, there's dysfunction in you know here in Jamaica, but also when I go to America, that same dysfunction exists. So it's like. It is kind of, maybe this is not the best way to describe it, but it is comforting to know that these issues with education are not just U.S. related. Like, obviously, a lot of these things that are built are built through, you know, the structures that the U.S. has been built upon, you know, something like, you know, No Child Left Behind and the damages that has, you know, seen throughout the years. But it is a a bit comforting in a way, you know, kind of uh, we're all in the sinking ship together to see that these are issues that are you know, world issues. And we're seeing in other countries, even in countries that have pretty good education systems are seeing these same things. And to potentially be like, all right, we need to figure out how the heck we go about creating an education system that benefits country by country, obviously, the complexities of being more idealistic on some countries have certain resources that other countries don't, but also at the same time realizing that, you know, as we face situations like climate change and potential aliens coming to destroy us, whatever it may be, you know, (laughs) we come together and we understand how information is shared and how information can be learned and how all these things can coexist to make a entire earth that works for the best of what earth needs rather than the best for what a few people with a lot of money need. Yeah, no, absolutely. And when I first read the article, the first thing that came to mind was what an incredible bait and switch. (laughs) You've got folks, the teachers coming from Jamaica to the United States. And I'm thinking for what? Until I read uh, the salaries that they're making in Jamaica. And then I thought, 
Well, it's all about perspective. But what happens when they get to the States or to the UK or whatever the other countries that they're going to for better pay and opportunity? What happens when, you know, their issues become too much to bear? Are they going to go back to Jamaica? Are they going to go someplace else? It's just kind of this never ending cycle, right? So to your earlier point, you know, we're plugging the holes, we're not fixing them. Um, and it's just going to, the problem is just going to perpetuate and it's just going to get worse until something foundational is changed. Not really sure what that is. Um, one thing that came also came to mind uh, is the controversy about the advanced placement courses uh, in the U.S. And I was listening to something else. And one of the teachers said, when students are preparing to take AP courses, they have to register on a national dashboard. And he said he was trying to walk the students through this dashboard. And he said, the students don't know their address. There are fundamental pieces of information about themselves and about their parents and their nuclear family, the families that they live with, that they don't know. You know, I remember having to know, you know, X number of things before I went to kindergarten. I had to know my mother's name. I had to know her phone number. Um, I had to know how to spell my name, right? Um, and just very basic things we're seeing not happening here. And so there's there are so many gaps along the way. It's almost like you can't pinpoint it. Like, should you have learned this in first grade? Because they don't know it as a junior in high school. Like, where is really, where's the stop gap? And where, when are we going to get to the point where it is just too much, right? So I, I've taught uh, my entire career on a college campus. And as an academic librarian, I worked with students of all ages, but I would see undergraduates not know certain things. And now I mostly see graduate students that don't know certain things. And, you know, I talk to my K-12 friends and they're all seeing the same thing and we can't figure out what's missing. There is there some, some level at which they did not learn something they should have. Um, and, you know, certainly the pandemic didn't help. Um, we've got a whole generation of students that have a gap, you know, for com- completely random, if you will, reasons, you know, that they had no control over. And, you know, it's almost like you're you're trying to lay down the train tracks as the train is running. You never, you know, you never get a real opportunity to kind of sit back and say, this is the problem and this is how we can actually plug those holes. So I think, you know, it's multidimensional in that fixing these problems may not benefit uh, the bottom line and benefit the right people who are making decisions, but it's also how do you fix the problem when you're actually in it? Um, yeah, so I'm, I, it's it's really complicated as, as well as frustrating. I did want to get, you know, you talked about obviously what's missing, and I know there's been a pretty, you know, lengthy discussion around what should be taught at schools, what should be taught in the house, you know. Even to your point, obviously, we come from different generations, but I know my family's phone numbers by heart. And now nowadays, I mean, most kids don't. How have you seen that kind of transition during your years in this industry of what's being taught at home? What isn't being taught at home? What should be taught at home? What should be taught in the classroom? Like, what have you seen shifted in your time? Yeah, I just, you know, I feel like, and I, you know, and you raise a great point about the generational issues and just you know, what is perhaps valued or not valued um, by different generations, different cultures, you know, because everyone brings, you know, their own experience to the table. You know, I came from, for example, a household that read three newspapers a day, right? People don't do that anymore. 
not only because they're of time and, and other things, but there aren't that many newspapers, right? And, you know, I didn't get email until I was in college. I, I know I'm dating myself, but <laughs> they call them what? Digital natives now, um, where they've never known a, a time without a cell phone or, you know, something of that nature. So, you know, it's a different influx of information. It's a different way of dealing with information, how people process information. Everything is just so different. So it's really hard to kind of pinpoint something. And and with and I'm saying that because sometimes I have to remind myself that it's not fair to make an assessment on what people are missing because they didn't grow up the way I did, or they didn't have that same uh, structure or scenario, what have you. But I do think a lot of basics are missing. Um, I don't think that people know how to evaluate information uh, in the same way. And again, to be fair, they're dealing with so much more of it, right? So it's hard for all of us to evaluate. Um, but they're just basic things. Like I said, you know, folks don't know uh, their vital information, you know, because they always have a phone with them. And hopefully that phone works so you can pull up that vital information. But along with that, I think particularly in, in higher ed, you see a lack of uh, critical thinking skills and really being able to pull the threads. So for example, lots of folks can do research, right? But can you synthesize that research and pull it together in a way that you can form an argument or that you can make a decision or you know that you can apply this information in a particular way? And that's kind of the gap that I see, you know, at least at the level at which I teach, you know, what is, what does the information mean? You found it. That's great. But how do you apply it? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think sometimes people equate uh, the critical thinking with arguing or, you know, everything is very weaponized and controversial and people want to tap out. Um, and we don't know how, how to have conversations anymore, which is, you know, what I especially love about this podcast and, you know, just the genre of people having conversations. Like we don't have to agree on everything. Um, we could have very fundamental differences. And at the end of the day, we're going to go get a beer and hang out and, and be because we respect each other's humanity. There's that gap in the critical thinking and also just a gap in that that critical interaction and in how we deal with each other as, as human beings. Well, yeah. And I think it comes down to, uh, at least from my perspective, how you were taught something you think that's the right way to be taught something. Like I've been recently seeing this quote unquote new math. (laughs) One of the questions was like eight plus five. And it's like, all right, how much do you have to take from eight or five to make one of them 10? So it's easier. And like, that's what I already do. You know, that's not new. It's just an easier way to understand how to do math. Because every time like I do math in my head, like that's an easy way to do it. But now we're just seeing it being taught directly instead of kind of figuring it out on your own. Oh, this is an easier way to do math. And even to, you know, the point about having a phone and having the, you know, ability to have any information at your fingertips or, you know, I remember teachers saying you're not going to have a calculator in your pocket, which I still think there's a good point to that because if you don't understand what one plus one means, if you put it into your, you know, phone and you get two, sure, you know, one plus one equals two, but do you understand why one plus one equals two? And I think that's something we're really losing in the scope of having so much available technology, especially when you get into like AI and chat GPT to basically tell you the answer, but not teach you how to understand why the answer is the answer. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when I'm teaching, um, I'm teaching inspiring librarians, information professionals, 
And there is a lot of debate uh, within the field about whether this graduate degree is necessary, right? Because again, the stereotype of we only check out books, how smart do you have to be, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, this is just what you were saying. It's like, we're teaching the foundation. We're not teaching the answer. We're teaching you how to make a decision. The way that things are set up, I can buy books that are already ready to put up on the shelf, right? Which used to be um, and still is a particular job of processing and acquisitions and all of our our buzzwords. But we can outsource just about everything now. But we need folks that are in the environment that actually can make decisions when something goes left, that they can think on their feet. And to your point, they know why one plus one equals two, and they therefore will know how to get to another version of two right? If the first version is broken or it no longer exists or what have you. So I think it's about, and I, I do think that that's, uh, agree with you that that's missing that foundation of, you know, just how to think and how to, you know, interact in an environment as opposed to saying, I know the answer, I can get the answer. That's great. But we need, we need both sets of those skills. When that's what really scares me. And, you know, i I don't have kids, but eventually down the line, I would like to have kids. And, you know, I grew up in public schools and, you know, I really love the aspect of having the ability to be around individuals that didn't look like me, that didn't sound like me, that didn't believe in the same things that I did. It really allowed me to get into a space like this where I feel comfortable having these conversations and I'm open to having these conversations. But then there seems to be this movement away from the, you know, public school sector. I know Texas has been slowly passing the uh, or getting through the hurdles to pass that $10,500 voucher uh, for qualifying families to put towards private school tuition. And it it's one of those things where those individuals that want to support something like that, you know, they don't like what's being quote unquote taught in public schools. And it's leading to obviously bigger classroom sizes, bigger teacher to student ratios, but then not realizing by doing something and supporting something like this, you're exasperating the problem. You're taking away more money from public schools. You know, I kind of know we were talking about technology in a sense. Do you believe there's a space for technology to play an important role in assisting teachers and helping bring more affordable access to primary education? You know, we do obviously talking about code, we have this information post COVID that it necessarily didn't help bridge the gap. But a lot of that was related to individuals not having a commuter at home or not having internet in uh, their home. And so having the space, you know, like a library, like a school that has computers, that has access to internet, that has access to this technology. I even read in preparation for the story, I read the story about um, a school in Jackson, Mississippi, where they couldn't find a qualified Spanish teacher. So they just had the students learn Spanish on the computer. And I think there might be a little interpersonal thing that might not work for that. But what are your thoughts around stories like that? And what role do you see technology in assisting in kind of closing that gap as public schools tend to lose that funding that they so vitally need? I mean, I think there's absolutely room and necessity for technology, right? And I think it's been a great gift. It's been a great boon to education when used properly and when we actually know how to use said technology. You know, a lot of the assumption is we'll just put it in the classroom and the kids will figure it out. Now, <laughs> there's, there's some truth to that. But also, I think it goes back to our previous conversation about what is the foundation of how you're using this tool. I remember one of my, uh, my doctoral advisor telling me, if you don't have the right question, you won't collect the right data, right? And if you don't collect the right data, then you can't answer the question. It, you can't do anything, 
you can have the right tool, but if you don't know why you're using the tool, you won't know how to use it effectively. It won't actually be beneficial. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like whenever it was uh, decades ago where they were kind of dropping computers, like literally dropping computers uh, into this African country so the folks would have access. They didn't know how to turn it on. What were they doing with it? Much less having the infrastructure for it, which is what we saw you know, a lot of during the pandemic. Um, but if you don't know how to use it, you know, what's really the point? And I think to your point about the larger class sizes and just everything that, you know, seems to be hindering education right now, the teachers don't have the time or the space or the energy to say, you know, this is how we're using this tool. This is why. And this is how you can use it. And not only is this how you can use it in this way, but this is how you can use it six other ways. You know, with your example about the Spanish teacher you know, what comes to mind is that there's so much context missing, right? I can listen to Duolingo or, you know, whatever all day long, um, but that's not going to give me necessarily the context of how this word came to be or how you could use the same word in three different places and have it mean three different things. So, you know, that human touch is, I think, really important, but you're missing so much context. And it's that context that really makes the learning sustainable. When that's one of the issues with technology is that it evolves so fast that it's hard to keep up. And now you're telling teachers that have so much already on their plate that they have to learn all these new technologies and be up to date to be able to teach something. Because to be able to teach something, you have to be able to understand it. And then now you're telling, you know, kids to be like, they're they're smart, they can figure it out, you know. And I, I do think that's why we're seeing a lot of the iPad kid generations and, you know, a lot of individuals being really stuck to phones, iPads, tablets, whatever it may be, because I do think it's, it's right. Going back to fear and control for parents and teachers, man, it's like, I don't understand these things. So I'm hoping that they understand these things because this stuff scares the shit out of me. And it, even, you know, somebody in my age and a millennial who's like gone through the technological boom and live through everything in real time as I've been in my developing stage, technology still, man, it still scares me. Even some things like ChatGPT, what they're developing with AI, especially around like AI with weapons and AI in the news space, you know, those are things that really scare me. And so now kids growing up into this world where all this technology has already been developed and is being used for sometimes nefarious reasons, that's very fearful. Yeah. And, you know, as you're saying this, I'm thinking about, well, the latest version is the debate about how AI can be controlled, if it can be controlled. Mm-hmm. And, you've got, you know, the forerunners in this field who have been working in artificial intelligence for decades are now calling for some type of, not necessarily legislation, but just some type of oversight. And we have no idea what that looks like. Right. And if, if the creators, if the experts are saying we have a problem, but we have, you know, a Congress and a, you know, a representative body who doesn't know how to use technology. I, some of them don't know how to use it at all. Those are perhaps <laughs> not the right people making these decisions. It just It just gets so unwieldy. And to your point about it being weaponized and it being um, used for nefarious reasons, like they're using this is not new, but they're using 3D printers to create ghost guns. They're circumventing uh, the few restrictions we have with gun safety, and they're just like literally making their own. 
the technology, while it's, it has so many benefits, if it gets out of control, if it gets into the wrong hands, it sounds like, you know, a, one of those bad movies, you know, it becomes uncontrollable, right? And then then what do we do? But yeah, I mean, I think there's, um, it's so much good, uh, but there's always so much to be thinking about. Again, the context and just the, how it's being used, what it's being used for, who's using it, who doesn't have access. And there's just so many other parts of the conversation uh, that are missing. And I think that's uh, what particularly shows up in chat GBT and in some of those technologies as well. When well, what you said was so important, like the foundation and understanding the foundation and building that foundation is so key and essential to uh, building a better education system, because even something like chat GPT, which can access any information, I think, before 2022, you can easily trick that into telling you whatever it wants to tell you, you know, kind of getting back to misinformation a little bit, but a lot of the younger generations are using TikTok as a source of news. And it's so easy to, (laughs) it's so easy to hyper-focus your marketing to tell somebody something that you want to tell them that may or may not be true because of the algorithms that TikTok uses it's so easy to pass misinformation, disinformation, malinformation, I like that uh, term. I even was just <laughs> watching this video of this girl trying to understand how two plus two equals four, but also two times two equals four, and then two squared equals four. And she was just could not comprehend how this works. And it had millions upon millions of views. I mean, obviously, some people making fun of her, but also in the comments, people being like, wait, how does this work? And that was really concerning because this is things that are being passed very easily. You know, a lot of uh, the younger generation is on their phone. I think there's a study that said like 70 to 80% of the younger generation is on their phone for more than six hours a day. I'll double check that um, information. Information shared by Stanford revealed that nearly all children used in their study of smartphone usage had a smartphone by the age of 15. And another study by Pew found that the average time spent on a phone per day amounted to over five hours and just over 2,000 phone touches a day. But that's a concern. And I feel like, you know, an old man yelling at the clouds. But we are seeing the negative impacts of this in real time. And as you're saying, you know, the fact that even the industry leaders are being like, hey, we might need to slow this down a bit is a concern. Yeah, yeah. I had, um, you know, and even before uh, TikTok, um, I have a colleague, Dr. Joe Sanchez, who was doing some research with high school students and they were using Snapchat and they said they were getting their news from Snapchat. So they would have, you know, like a title or headline saying South Korea or excuse me, North Korea launches another missile or something to that nature. And he would say, okay, so what else did the story say? And they said, we don't know. We just read the headline. (laughs) Right. And part of it was, you know, the different media companies, the different magazines, the different outlets, they know their audience, they know where they are, and they create channels and profiles. And it's by design to just kind of feed them these headlines because they know they're not going to click on anything. There's there's some misinformation, disinformation, malinformation happening there. But it's almost like this performative kind of interaction um, that I almost kind of don't understand. If you don't actually want to know then what is the point of going through the headlines? I mean, it's a very peripheral way of knowing, but they're not going any further. Um, And just, you know, the other thing that came to mind was, do you remember when um, they had to put this campaign out that you shouldn't eat Tide Pods? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yep. Yeah. It was one of those, 
you know, uh, viral kind of, uh, I don't remember, it may not have been TikTok at that point, but whatever it was at the time, it was like this viral sensation. And you have to tell people some of the most basic things. And you wonder, like, who would believe that? But to your, your opening point about that, if you're spending six hours a day, and that might be on the low end of just being on TikTok or Snapchat or whatever it is they're using right this minute, you're just, it's that echo chamber and you're just surrounded by the same information and it's being repeated to the point where you believe it. Whereas, you know, you and I might think that just is so crazy. It can't be. Um, and there's just no common sense. Um, but it's just the way information is processed in these very narrow ways and just the virality of it. There's just something about that phenomenon that just makes people do things, which which is a problem. When I do want to be like clear, like every generation has had something like this, but I think this modern technology is a hundred times more. Like even for my generation, you know, the internet and being able to, you know, first explore the internet and all the available information, like I didn't know what half of that was. I didn't know, you know, if half of that was true, but I think now in today's day and age with how technology has evolved so fast at this exponential rate, you know, yes, we all have had these similar things where we're getting our information put through a funnel and fed to us. It's at such a higher level that I don't think people are really realizing like this is times a million, not just times a thousand, not just times a hundred, not just double. This is big time multiplication. Oh, absolutely. It's it's like this, um, the phrase that a lot of folks use it's like getting your information out of a fire hose. And it's just, you know, to your point, it's just coming at you at just such a level and really at such a speed. There's there's almost no way that you can process or kind of maneuver through all of that information. When I do kind of want to flip this story back to the positive, you know, among your fellow educators, what have you seen working in the space that has a positive impact on kids? You know, should there be more focus on funding and addressing behavior concerns, maybe something else, or maybe just all the things that fall under the, this would be helpful for better education list. You know, what has been working that you've been seeing? Yeah, I think there's so much and there's so much good happening. Um, one thing that I think is really important is I've seen uh, schools doing yoga for kids and just giving them a positive outlet and just, you know, being mindful, right? And, you know, we're talking about information coming out at exponential speeds and we're all going home to complicated things. The world is complicated and it just gives kids a way to center and just, you know, be present. And I think that's having some really great effects as well. The other thing I'm reminded of this commercial that plays nonstop, just about kids having food. Right. And I think sometimes um, there's so much, so many other things happening that sometimes you forget that if kids aren't at school, they're not eating. Right. So to have these initiatives where kids can get breakfast, they can get lunch, they might have a little something to take home. I think that's really beneficial. I would love to see more of that. You know, we've got, um, I'm here in South Carolina, we've got a lot of rural areas in South Carolina and just, you know, the initiatives to, have wider access and wider infrastructure. So folks really can have access at home. They can access the library online or, you know, what have you. Um, And I think something just really basic that is currently under fire with the book challenges and bans um, are school libraries. And I think school libraries are one of our greatest gifts that 
people don't realize, you know, having the media specialist in there to hand, just hand a kid a book, you know, much less be able to help them with some of the technology and, and some of the other things, just, you know, old fashioned, I think you would really love this book and have a good time reading it. So I think that there are so many like little jewels that we should be taking more advantage of in addition to, you know, some of the the larger issues. But we've got some really great librarians. We've got some really great teachers coming out. Um, and I think even to that story, I, please let us pay them more, you know, so <laughs> they, don't, they don't run screaming from the building. There's just so much good and we just have to figure out a way to, to keep it and to ha- have it flourish. Yeah. When you said in that first story, you know, guidelines hadn't changed in 30 years. I'm like, I get it now after reading about, you know, these wages not changing for 30 years, even, you know, 6% of the GDP, you know, here in the U.S. towards education, like education is the bedrock for everything mm-hmm. and getting to people that might be like, oh, no, we we need to be powerful military Like if we have smarter people, we have better, safer weapons. Obviously, that's not where we want to go. You know, we don't want to create the perfect weapon because we're super smart. But to get people on your side, sometimes you have to allow to say, well, these are the benefits that would be beneficial to you and what you want and your ideas. And I think that's just something that I don't understand why we're I do understand why I understand uh, why we don't uh, invest in education. I talk about it uh, multiple times, you know, if you keep people stupid, they're easier to control. And which is such a horrible thing to say, but that's what's happening. You know, that's the ability to take away polling stations. And obviously, we just had election day here in the US, but making it harder to vote. So people have less of a voice. So you're taking away their voice. Once again, all the way back to that first story, it's about control. Where does control come from? It comes from fear. If people are informed, the people at the top are going to be fearful of losing that position, you know, and I think there's so many good things that you highlighted that are happening in education, uh, the educational sphere. And I know we talked about a lot of things that seem to be going wrong, but I do think we're on uh, uh, the right direction. Uh, but we just need more support to you know continue to build that train and know exactly where that train is going and have the resources to be able to put the tracks down well ahead of time. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm just, as you're saying that, I'm thinking of you know, like this year was the 50th anniversary of hip hop. And just thinking about all of the different programs that schools and libraries did, highlighting this particular musical genre and everything that it's, you know, kind of brought to society. There is a math lesson in there. There was a social studies lesson in there. There was a history lesson in there. And, you know, the teachers are just so creative and really, really adept at engaging the students in a way that maybe they haven't been able to to do previously. And we talk a lot about community engagement and how to really know our communities, but also how to engage with them um, in order for them to kind of contribute to this creation of knowledge. Again, I think that that's to your point. This is the type of education uh, that, you know, some might be afraid of. There's some really dynamic folks coming up um, and they're asking questions and they're going to run for election and they're going to boycott and picket and they're going to try and take over the school board and and all of these things. And I think a lot of the folks that are um, content and complacent in the status quo, that's exactly what they Mm -hmm. don't want. I think that's perfectly said. Nicole, I want to thank you for taking the time to share your perspective on some of these strangest and most bizarre news stories the world has to offer in an engaging, productive, and meaningful conversation. 
Listeners, if you'd like to keep up with Nicole's work through the University of South Carolina, you can do so by following her through the Augusta Baker Chair and her involvement in many of the various lectures and conversations around continuing the work and legacy of Augusta Baker. Additionally, Nicole serves as the founding editor of the Critical Cultural Information Studies series through ALA Editions. Neil Schumann. Uh, a lot of options uh, are available if you'd like to hear more. And of course, those links will be included in the episode description and on our website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. So kind of final question here. You're the first guest I've had on the podcast with a Wikipedia page. Oh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> trust. I don't even know if you knew this, but trust me, I've, I've tried multiple times to make one for myself. But what does it mean to you to have such high recognition for the work that you have already done. You know, I know we joked about it earlier, but your list of accomplishments and accolades are truly something to be very, very proud of. But what does that mean to you and your work to see, you know, your legacy is built and being built and continues to be built? Like, what does that mean to you? It it is really awesome. And I mean, uh, awesome in really just the full effect of the word. I always say that um, I want to leave librarianship better than I found it. Um, And that's really what this means to me, that my work has had an impact or is having an impact. And just that people are listening, right? You you do all of this work, particularly when you're writing. Um, and you sometimes you think your your work just goes out into a black hole and it's you know it just disappears. <laughs> Welcome and, to podcasting. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But it, you know when you have someone repeat something back to you, or you get an amazing invitation like this one, it's it's really it's gratifying uh, to know that people are listening, uh, that people understand you know what you're saying, what you're trying to you know put out into the world, and it's just it's nice to be appreciated. So it's 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 awe inspiring. It's humbling. But just really, um, just really grateful uh, that essentially the work means something. I think that's perfectly said. And I'm going to ask you to end this show one more time. We have now reached my favorite part of the podcast where I get to hand off hosting duties to you, Nicole, to close out the show. However, it seems right. You know, I do think as we've gotten to this conversation, you're the exact right person to be in this position right now. You know, librarians are well known to be savions with words and ending a story just right. The floor is yours. Our listeners today, crisscross applesauce, just a little closer, close out our conversation. Thank you so much. Uh, It has been an honor and a pleasure. And I want folks to go out there and rabble rouse and start some good trouble uh, and and just be advocates for the community and and be advocates for yourselves. Um, We are our own best advocate, our own best tool. And together we can... uh, make things better and change some of these crazy stories we're hearing about. I love that. And I just want to thank you for obviously being on the show, you know, as someone who grew up around libraries, like every summer, my aunt would take me to the library. I mean, I would go for the comic books, you know, uh, Spider-Man was always the go-to, but the ability to every summer have that safe space to go to and have this open uh, ability to explore different worlds and kind of the escapism that I see books coming to me, especially like fiction books, comic books, and to escape to escape reality for just a little bit and have that sense of, I'm in a world where, man, this is really cool. There's a freaking man swinging around, you know, New York and saving the day. But to be able to explore this more and kind of the impact you've had on the space has obviously been really cool to learn about. So Very much appreciate you coming on this uh, show today. Absolutely. It's been a great pleasure. Well, listeners, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, the show will be over. Peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, 
they're absolutely not because they're real. <laughs>